Hey, I share this because this doesn't happen all the time. Um, hopefully you're familiar with the show The Office. If you're not, you should be um, if you want to be awesome. But I have my own Michael Scott moment. Usually when I come in to Koinaz, I come in the other way. Don't ask me what road, but it's the other way. This time I came in from Moton, which I think is this way, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. I turn left in the civilization. I'm real excited. And I kind of know the general area where the church is, you know, but I got to follow the GPS. And if you're familiar with The Office, you probably remember the episode where Michael gets a rental car and he gets GPS and the GPS has turned right. So he listens to the GPS. That's what you're supposed to do, right? He listens to the GPS. And what does he do? He turns right into a lake, right? So I kind of had a little moment like that today in that I, I started, I went over the hill. I think it was hometown road. And in my head, right, when, you, when we still thought, that was good, when we didn't rely on our computers, when we still thought, in my head I was just like, I don't think this is the right spot. I'm pretty sure if I go another block, I'll be okay. But I'm like, no, 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 no. You got to listen to the GPS. So I went down Hometown Road, and I blinked, and I ended up at JPR Excavation or something. And the best part about it is GPS is like, you are here. I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, it's like the, the little dots blinking. And here's the even best part about the story. I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be, right? But I was so stubborn, I sat there, and I was just like, GPS can't possibly be wrong. You know, like, do I need to get out, walk around? Maybe it's behind somewhere, you know? And after about five minutes of this, I was just like, well, I guess I should call Tim, <laughs> you know? I called Tim, he's like, wait, where are you? And I was just like, I think I'm down Hometown Road. I'm coming up to the thing. I think I just need to go left. He goes, well, if you go down the hill, you should see the sign about a block away. And I was just like, GPS. Um, but hey, man, we can't all be Michael Scott, but we can try. So this morning, uh, we're going to talk about First John a little bit. And we start off with this clip from Forrest Gump. And one of the things that's interesting about Forrest Gump, I just realized this week, it's over 20 years old, which is kind of wild, you know? And, and the reason I like this scene is because I think it's going to get kind of a good introduction as to what First John is about, the perspective it's coming from. Um, I also think Forrest Gump is the greatest American movie ever. Right now, if you're super elitist, you might say Citizen Kane, right? Like, that's what AFI picked. You know, I remember when I first got Netflix years ago, I was like, well, they said it's number one. I got to watch Citizen Kane. It did nothing for me. Now, if you're in the movie industry, I think you can appreciate some of the nuances, the new technology. But here's the thing it's 1950s, 1960s technology. To a kid who's born in 83, it means nothing to me, right? Citizen Kane didn't do it for me. It didn't speak to me. I didn't care about the movie. I watched the whole thing because you're supposed to, right? It's the greatest movie ever. But for me, I think it's Forrest Gump. And the reason, and you got to be careful, I'm not endorsing everything that happens in the movie, right? But I think it is important for us to know that culture, a lot of times, is both a map and a mirror as to where our society is. And I think it's important for we as believers to know what's going on in culture if we're ever going to speak into it. So one of the interesting things about Forrest Gump is that you get every single emotion in this movie. There's scenes that make you happy. There's scenes that make you sad. There's scenes that make you laugh. There's scenes that make you cry. You feel joy, grief, anger, rage, comfort, peace, hope, dreams. There's everything that's in this movie. You get every single human emotion. The other thing I think is interesting about Forrest Gump is they somehow encompass every major event of the 20th century in North America. Right? So no matter what you think about the movie, you will have some kind of perspective or worldview that they're going to challenge because they have a, something to say about everything, right? Um, but, but what I think I love about this movie, though, is that the writing's good, the acting's superb, the directing's good. I don't even care about scores and sound. Well, I care about soundtracks. So I'm a music snob, too. So I care about soundtracks. But score, 
The score is good. Like, the scenes and the music actually make sense. You know, sometimes you watch TV or a movie, and you're like, wait, who picked this song? Right? You never get that in Forrest Gump. It is probably the greatest American movie ever, which is important because, you know, I work in Harrisburg, and most of my kids, if you ask them what's the greatest movie ever, they'll probably say straight out of Compton, but they're wrong. You know, it's Forrest Gump. (laughs) The thing about Forrest Gump, though, is, and I think what's important about getting us to 1 John this morning is that one of the core tenets in this story is Forrest and Jenny. And some of you might remember that scene, some of you might not. But you remember the affection? Years later, the affection with which he talks with her. You know, he remembers the first time he met her. The voice of an angel, right? You remember the invitation? The fact that no one else eats steak, and I, I, I'm not Southern, I can't do the accent, right? Remember, three, four people say no, and she's the one who invites him in. Remember the intrigue in that beginning conversation? How, for the first time in his life, this is the first person who wants to talk to him and ask him questions. The first person who's interested in him. And then something that's a little bit weird, he says, we were like peas and carrots, And I I don't know about you, but I've never ate peas and carrots together. It doesn't sound that appetizing. But it does remind me of my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Barone, who was a little weird, but he ate peas and carrots every day. So apparently they go together. The other thing about this, though, is that in the very beginning of this relationship, you see the sharing of gifts. You see the idea of this is what I bring to the table. This is the idea of what you bring to the table. Together we are better. Forrest and Jenny. Now, what I like about this story is that I grew up thinking, oh, it's a love story. But I think more than a love story, actually, I think it's just a best friend story. You know, we all have different answers. If I were to say, who's your best friend? You know, what the funny thing is, I was thinking about this because if you ask me who my best friend is, my answer now at 32 is much different than my answer would have been at 7, you know, at 15, at 25. You know, I, if you ask me who my best friend, I'm like, well, it might be my cousin A.B. Or maybe it's my cousin Joe. Or maybe it was Jimmy Russo. I caught for him in Little League, and that's why I'm a Mets fan. So thanks, Jimmy. Um, or maybe it was my college roommate, Mike, who I still talk to every day, even though he lives in Tennessee. You know, we Skype and FaceTime now, so I think I see him more than people who live next door to me sometimes. So maybe it's that. Who is my best friend? But I think we all might have different people and different ideas of what's being a best friend. But if you ask me what it takes to be a best friend, I think you can boil it down to three things. They know you, Right? And I'm not just talking about inside jokes. I'm talking about being able to let your hair down, right? Being able to be comfortable in your own skin. They know you and they still love you. One of my favorite comedians says, you know, it's almost as if, like, they know the crust of a person. You know, when you wake up in the morning, and I'm not talking about the little blip in your eye. I'm talking about when it's, like, really crusted over and disgusting to look at. He's like, they look at the crust of you and they don't look away. They don't just help you, but they still love you in spite of it, right? So they know you. They vouch for you. Right? And I'm not just talking about, oh, I got your back, but I'm talking about someone who will always be there for you without even you having a question. And you could be wrong, but they'll still vouch for you. And then that last thing, they know you, they vouch for you, and they impact you. You know, my best friend, one of my best friends, actually, was my cousin Joe. Um, when I was about nine years old, I was adopted from Liberia. Um, we were going through civil war. My family had political ties. Crazy story, but if you invite me over for dinner, I'll blow your mind. It'll be great, you know? And you, we can eat some food, too. Um, but one of the things about this story that's interesting is that Joe and our family were in, a, were in the same grade, but he was a year older. So in my culture, that's a big deal. So he was the head of the house when my aunt was away, right? My aunt who adopted me. And I still remember one night, my aunt was working night shifts. She was a nurse. And I remember her saying, hey, before you go to sleep, this is crazy. We live in Philadelphia. Probably close the doors and, you know, like turn off the lights and cut the TV off. Not that hard, you know? But it was the middle of summer, it was hot, you know, when she wasn't around, 
you know, we weren't allowed to have the air conditioning on. It's one of those parenting rules that they make, and it makes no sense, but you're a kid, so you just go with it because you don't want to get beat. They beat us in our family, right? So I was just like, all right, fine, I'll open everything. I open the windows, the doors, and I'm sitting there and watching TV, and guess what? I fall asleep. I fall asleep, and I left the front door open in Philadelphia, southwest Philly, maybe one of the most dangerous places in the country, but that's fine. Left the doors wide open, left all the lights on, left the TV on, everything. And here's the crazy part. Night shift was 11 to 7. I woke up at like 6.53. Now, you would think that my first reaction would be, well, let's turn everything off, right, and go upstairs and pretend nothing happened. But I was so tired and out of it, and I'm like, man, why am I on the couch? Like, I need to go to my room. So I get up, and I go to my room. 7.15 on the dot. My aunt walks into the house, and she's like, this boy really left the door open? The TV on? The lights on? What is wrong with him? So as she's loved to do, she calls us down, right? And she calls all of She calls me and my brother down. Well, I call him my brother now. He's my adopted brother. Calls me and Joe down. We're front and center. And she goes, now, I don't even care who left it on, but you're the oldest. Meanwhile, Joe had been sleeping for like eight hours. Like he was gone. This was all on me, right? She's like, you're the oldest. And because you're the oldest, you're the one who's getting in trouble. Now, if I were a better Christian or person, I would say, no, this is all my fault. You know, I'm the one who left the door open. I'm the one who left the TV on. I'm the one who did all things. But I was just like, you know what? If she's going to blame him, we're just going to go with this. You know, she's going to let this go a little bit. You know, so I was just like, what do you mean he's the oldest? And she's like, you're the oldest. You're responsible. You go back to bed. You, you're in trouble. And, you know, he got disciplined for my error. And years later, we still, we actually now laugh. It took us a little while, you know, maybe like a week. You know, it's like one of those real fights that you have with your siblings and you split the, half, the house in half. And it doesn't make sense, right? Like, it's just like, this is my side of the house. This is my side of the fridge. You know, we did one of those. But we got through it. Now we laugh about that story. And the reason I bring up that story is because it wasn't his fault. He did nothing wrong. But he took the punishment for me. He took the punishment for me, and, and I love him for it. I loved them before, but after that, I really loved them, right? So best friends, they know you, they vouch for you, they impact you. This happened when I was about 10 or 11, so over 20 years ago, probably about the time of Forrest Gump, and yet I still remember this story. I still remember that even though he's in Virginia and I'm in Harrisburg, this is someone who will always be there for me. But now if you were to ask me, you know, who's my best friend today, the first thing I would say is, I wish it was Jesus. You know, I used to tell people when I was really young and, you know, a little bit more cocky, I guess, I would be like, you know, my best friend is Jesus. Or maybe even I'd be like, well, I'd like it to be Jesus. But here's the thing. I wish I lived my life in a way that Jesus was the first one and the only one I did everything with and I perfectly lived for. You know, I think my relationship with Jesus is now more that he should be my best friend and that's what I'm working on. I'm working on building my relationship with him, knowing him, vouching for him, living for his glory. I'm working all of that. But when I say who my best friend is right now, it's probably my wife. And that's a good thing. You know, this is a little older picture, but it's the only one I can find on my phone. It's my wife and our little girl Harper there in the middle. She's pretty cute. Um, thing about this, though, is that, you know, my wife knows me. She knows that I'm probably, you know, I think I'm the funniest person I know. She hates it, but it's true. I really do think I'm the funniest person I know, you know? She knows that, you know, I love 
sports. And I'm not one of those crazies that, like, if my sporting team lose, like Penn State did yesterday to Temple, like, it crushes me. However, I'm one of those who, if you ask me about it, I will give you 10 minutes my recap thoughts on it, you know? So she knows me. She also vouches for me. You know, one of the things I love about my wife is that, and it sounds cheesy, but it's like, she is my greatest fan. Like, she sees things in me before I see them in myself. I remember when we were dating, for example, I had a job at the time working at a youth center, making like $10 an hour, and not even knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And yet she was just like, well, God has something greater for you. I'm like, I'm glad you see it, you know? Um, Another quick story about when my wife and I were dating. This is the one about the impact. Know you, they vouch for you, they impact you. When my wife and I were dating, we started dating, I remember, on a Sunday night in October. I can tell you the date if you really want to know. I remember when we started dating, it was the first time, as you can see, my wife is white. I think she's been here a couple times. Um, This was the first time I had ever dated someone who was outside my race before my wife, right? I dated this girl who I grew up with. Our families were close. We vacationed together. First church I ever preached in that wasn't the church I grew up in was this girl's church. But as soon as we started dating, you know, everything came out that I was just like, wait, where did this come from? And I actually call it the perfect storm because up until this point, I believe Martin Luther King. I believe they will judge me by the content of my character. And I have another friend who's a little bit more cynical than me and says, like, why can't they just judge you for you? Like, why do you have to win people over? But that's literally the mindset I had. And I remember going through this one relationship where all of that wasn't enough. You know, it's just like black and white shouldn't mix or some stuff that was a little bit more racist I probably shouldn't say in front of you, right? And I remember dealing with this. I remember being hard because I'm like, but they're Christians. Like, Christians are not supposed to think and do this and, and believe these things. But the fact that I was black wasn't good enough. So when I started dating my wife, actually, the funny thing about my wife, the reason we started dating is because she beat me in a debate. It's a love story, I know, right? And, I, and the debate basically went like this. I was like, I believe in racial reconciliation. I think the way the Bible's tailored is for all people to come together. You know, I think that's what the Bible looks like. I think if we have churches where everyone looks like us, that's not biblical. I think that the way the church moves is when you go multicultural. The Jews had to go to the Gentiles. That's what happened in Acts, right? The Gentiles, right, which was everybody who wasn't Jewish, had to go to the great Roman Empire. And after the empire fell, they went to the barbarians. If you didn't know, that's the white people. That's the Celts. That's the Anglo-Saxons. That's the Huguenots. Everyone who wasn't in the empire, white people, they were considered barbarians. They had to go to the barbarians. And then after empires and countries started falling, they had to go to what's now called the global south. And now there's more Christians in Africa, Asia, South America than in North America, right? We have always been a multicultural church. I was on my little soapbox, you know, like going off. And my wife is like, and she was, before she was like, it's very interesting that um, you believe all these things, but you just told me, was that yesterday? Or was it 10 minutes ago? That you would never marry a white person. So how can you believe all these things when you never marry a white person? I was just like, she's good. She's a keeper, this one. And that was the beginning of our relationship. But one of the, um, the actually more meaningful stories about my wife and I was that we started dating on a Sunday, and I remember, like, we were going to meet her parents that Friday. It's not really the ideal planning. You know, we were, had, like, this group in Harrisburg, about 20 of us young adults, that we just planned to do stuff together. It's what we did. We're like, we're Christians, we're crazy, we live and work in the city, we're going to change the world, but we're going to do stuff together on weekends. And we had planned to go to her family's farm, which for a city kid, this was intriguing, right? Her dad's a dairy farmer. I, in 2008, 2007, still believed that they got under there, and that's how we got milk, right? I didn't know there was machines and whatnot. Like, I didn't know any of this. So 
So I was intrigued. And I remember meeting her parents that Friday. And one of the things that's amazing about her parents is that because of my wife, I was good enough. You know, because of her. Like, it wasn't even like, like, first of all, I have a daughter. When she brings a guy home, I'm not going to be as loving as they are. I wish I am, but I'm not, you know. But one of the things that was really fascinating to me is that they knew their daughter. And because of their daughter, I was okay, right? And there was something about her life and vouching for me that made her my best friend, that made her this thing we're building. Now, why am I talking about best friends? I wasted 10 minutes of your life telling all these crazy stories about best friends. Why is all this important? You know, I had a business law professor at Good Old Messiah College where I graduated. And the class was genius, right? He would have us spend all these hours researching obscure laws, and he would pit us against each other, and then you would argue. But here's the thing. It took us about half a semester to realize that it didn't matter what position you took. He didn't care what position you took. All he wanted was you to answer the one basic question, so what? You can have the laws. You can have the prefaces. You can have your positions. But what does that mean? So we're talking about best friends this morning, but what exactly does that mean? You see, if you're going to study First John, like Tim says, the way of love, I think one of the crucial things, I'm only going to give you two or three things this morning, real simple. One of the first things you need to know about First John is that it is written from the perspective of Jesus' best friend. It is written from the perspective of someone who knew Jesus, right? How well did John know Jesus? Basic Bible breakdown is like this. Jesus, we believe, spoke to maybe thousands in his lifetime, right? Of the thousands, let's say he was really good. Maybe not Billy Graham good, but really good. You know, like he spoke to thousands, but maybe hundreds actually chose to follow Jesus, right? Maybe hundreds actually chose to follow Jesus. And of those hundreds, maybe tens, actually then they didn't just say it, they lived it, right? And the Bible even tells us that he sends out 72, to go and, and literally tell the world that I have come, I have come to save you. And here's the other thing. We need to always remember that Jesus didn't come for me, Jesus came for us. So we need to be very, very careful how we even talk about salvation because it's never just about you. When it comes to Jesus, it's always about us. God sent his son for the world. If we stop singing and living, Jesus sent his son for me, we're being unbiblical. That's a side piece. Now, he sends out 72. Now, of that 72, we believe that 12 were disciples. And actually, that's really only 11, right? Because one kind of betrayed him. But 12 were disciples. So you see how it's getting down? He spoke to thousands. Maybe hundreds followed him. Maybe tens actually believed him and did what he said. 72 actually went out and told people about him. 12, maybe 11, actually were close following him every day. And then of that 11, there's four guys that just keep hopping up. In, you know, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the Gospels, right? Four guys always seem to be this inner circle, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? They seem to be the ones who are on the core. And of all those four, there's only one guy who gets away with this all the time. In his biography, you know how he calls himself? He's like, yeah, Peter was there, Andrew was there, and the one that Jesus loved. You know, I'm just thinking about this, like, who edits that manuscript? You know, it's like, if I'm sitting there, I'm just like, yeah, we're good. Jesus walked on water. That was awesome. And I was there. Peter was there. Andrew was there. Wait, what? Really, John? Really? That's you? You get this title? How come the rest of us don't get it? You know, the one that Jesus loved is how he described himself. But here's the incredible part. It is how everyone else allowed him to describe himself. They knew there was something special about John's relationship with Jesus. You know, another proof about the special um, 
specialness, I guess, of their relationship happens on the cross. Another biography of Jesus, we know Jesus died on the cross, right? But one thing that we sometimes forget is that in Jesus' culture, it was the job of the older son to provide for the mother who was a widow. Now, every biblical scholar, liberal, conservative, people who are Christians, not Christians, they all believe 99% of them, it's like dentists, right? 99.9. We'll leave a little smidgen. But most believe that Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, had died by the time Jesus goes to the cross. So literally, as the eldest son, it was Jesus' job to provide for his mother. Now, we over-spiritualize this. We're like, well, no, his job was to die and then go to heaven. But what about the practical reality of his mother? Because back then in that society, women were dependent on men, and widows were dependent on their children, right? If your son didn't provide for you, it meant a life of poverty. It meant a life of outside the community. It meant a life of scrounging. And here's the even crazier part. It might mean a life of losing what your husband had and your resources. So this is why it's important. So out of all the disciples, out of all the thousands that he preached to, the hundreds that actually might have believed, the tens that followed him, the 12, maybe 11 that were his disciples, the four on the inner circle, out of every single one, the person he chooses and says, John, this is your mother. Well, I, I said that backwards. I give you the answer first, right? The disciple he chooses is the one he loves. And this is always, I'm a mama's boy. That's just true. You know, like my dad was killed in Liberia when I was seven. And I've been a mama's boy ever since. So this story has always resonated with me. He's up on the cross. He's dying for the sins of the world. He's taking the punishment of everything that we've ever done. And out of all of that, he still pauses because he's a mama's boy. He still pauses and he looks down and he sees John and he sees Mary and he says, John, this is now your mother. Essentially, he says, I know it's my job to take care of my mom, but I got something else to do. So out of all the disciples, out of all the people who are close to me, John, you're going to be the one who's now responsible for your mother. That is the kind of relationship that John and Jesus have. So when you get the first John, no matter everything we go through, realize and recognize and hold on to that this person speaking arguably, maybe even inarguably, knew Jesus the best. You know, so when he writes this letter, he writes because he is the one that Jesus loved. He writes because he vouches for Jesus. He writes because Jesus isn't just Messiah. Jesus isn't just Savior. Jesus isn't just God. Jesus is his friend. Another interesting thing is that, you know, you have a lot of different people in the Bible describing Jesus. One of my favorite people in the Bible of all time is Peter. I always find ways to put Peter in a sermon because a lot of times you read the Bible, and reading the Bible is good, right? We should do that. A lot of times people read the Bible, and let's be real, some of the stuff they ask you to do, you can't even imagine doing. Like, think about this. Noah builds an ark, and how do we teach this school in Sunday school? And even as adults, we're like, yeah, he built a big boat, the rains came, God is good. Do you realize how big that boat had to be? You know, and do you realize he didn't have any power tools? Right? Like, think about that for a second. Let's just practically look at Noah building the boat. Now, I know some of you are much smarter than me. You're like, well, it wasn't actually a boat, or maybe it was a boat, or I don't know. But let's just go with what the Bible says, right? He built a boat. We put animals on it. Think about how big it would have to be and power tools and how long that would have to be. Now, there's a couple verses in the scripture that says, yeah, and people made fun of him. They made fun of him because you would have done the same thing because he's crazy. Like, there's a good chance Noah didn't blink and build a boat in a day, right? Like, how long did it take? A week? A year? A couple years? That is faith. And I look at that story and I was just like, God, I love you, but 
three years of building a boat the size of this building or bigger, and no one else is believing me, that's a little crazy, right? I, I, I don't feel that I, I could be Noah. You know, another one of my favorite ones is Abraham. Abraham is so good, people, that the Muslims have claimed him. The Jews hold on to him. We Christians, we even sing songs about him. Father Abraham. That's Sunday school for you, right? But here's the thing about Abraham. Remember his story? God calls him, and God says, listen, Abraham, I want you to pack up everything you have, everyone you know who still likes you, and I want you to just go. And Abraham says, cool, I'll go. Where? To the land where I'll show you. Now, here's the thing about Abraham. If he did that today, all of us, not some of us, all of us will refer him to a shrink, Right? Think about this. He doesn't yet have a relationship with God. He doesn't know who God is. He has a voice in his head. And he packs up his entire family, everyone, and he goes. Where? To the land where I'll show you. Awesome. Like, I just don't feel like I can be Noah or Abraham. But you know who I could be? I could be Peter. Peter's awesome. Right? Remember when Jesus walked on water? We hear this story, and the thinking is like, Jesus walked on water, and because Jesus walked on water, that's a miracle. That's not the miracle. Jesus is God. He spoke the world into existence, right? Like, he created everything. Him walking on water, not a big deal. Big deal, Peter, a man like you and me, he walked on water too. You know why Peter walked on water? If you remember the story, Jesus is walking on water, crazy, right? And everyone else is like, yeah, it's Jesus. All right, we'll go with it, right? And Peter's the only one who says, you know, if it's really you, let me walk out there with you. I love that guy because that's me. You know, when they come to arrest Jesus, right, he's going to die. That's the purpose of him coming. He's the God of this universe, right? He can speak something, and all these soldiers can fall down, right? Jesus wants to go to the cross for us. There's a whole battalion come down. Everyone else is just like, okay, we love Jesus, but it's a battalion, so we're good, right? What does Peter do? He whips out a sword. He's like, let's go, right? I get this guy. So Peter's a man of action, and when it comes to Jesus, Peter says, you know what? Jesus was the one who did no sin. Paul was another guy in the Bible, and he was a scholar, wrote a lot of the New Testament. When he thought about Jesus, he says, you know, Jesus is the one who thought no sin. But when it comes to John, the one who perfectly knows Jesus, he says, Jesus is the one in whom there was no sin. I know this guy through and through, and he's perfect. This is the relationship they have. We're going to read 1 John 1. I'm going to go through these verses real quick here. And just, it's going to be on the screen, so I'm just going to read along. This was the person who's writing, Jesus' best friend. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. The first thing I want you guys to know about this in John chapter 1 is there's two things. And our Bible kind of help us, right? They break it down, 1 to 4, 5 to 10, right? The first thing you need to realize about John is that he's writing as a witness. 
He's writing as a witness. He's not just talking about this God that we can't touch or feel or seal. He's talking about someone he saw. He's talking about someone he heard. He's talking about someone he touched. He's saying, this Jesus we now elevate was my best friend. I am only telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I'm only telling you what I lived. God has come. I'm testifying of Jesus. You know, the next slide, we'll put it up real quick, is Nike, which is, oh, I think I jumped ahead of myself maybe. Now we go to that. This is LeBron James. You've probably heard of him before. He's one of our gods in our culture today. Um, Nike is actually a Greek word that means victory. He's the goddess of victory. And what's interesting is that that's biblical Greek. Almost, well, I guess ancient Greek is probably the safest way to put it. But that is actually right. Like that is very biblical what they're saying. Because the whole point was in this arena, in this building, you're going to see great things. Come and see. Go and tell people about this LeBron James. When you come here, it's going to be amazing. Come and see. We are all witnesses, right? This is the same thing John's talking. In our culture, we think of eyewitness who gives a testimony on the, on, on the stand or someone who gives a testimony when something happens because they were there. But what John is saying is that in the biblical Greek, that tradition is, I am a witness of Jesus. Meaning that Jesus has done great things. I'm going to go tell you the great things he's done. Right? So that's where he comes from. So that's the very, very first thing we want to hold on to. The second thing is that John is a witness of what we call the full gospel. And really quick, we need to stop just understanding Jesus' death as the gospel. Because John is saying everything matters. And you'll see this in the book of 1 John. He's saying, listen, he was God, but he came to this earth. That's important right? He's saying that he walked this earth. He lived the life that we're living. He's had the same things we struggle with, and he came through. His life matters. His birth matters. His death matters. His resurrection matters. John is testifying of this, the complete gospel. And what's interesting is that this is what God calls us all to do. And this is the second big thing I have for you this morning. He's his best friend. He perfectly knows Jesus. He vouches for Jesus. He loves Jesus. Jesus impacts him. But John is saying this, And this is the whole challenge this morning, right? How are you being a witness to God? First time I ever entered the old Yankee Stadium, it took my breath away. It did. Like, I walked in. I'm a baseball. I I love sports. I walked in. It took my breath away because I'm like, Babe Ruth played here. Lou Gehrig played here. This is amazing. All the history. I remember actually being awed. Now, if you don't care about sports, you're like, well, this guy's weird, right? But if you do, it's kind of cool to think about that, right? But I remember coming home, and I got this, first of all, I would call that guilty complex. So I remember thinking there on my way home and saying, like, how come I don't have the same feeling when I go to, say, church? Right? Like, how come I don't have the same feeling when I'm like, God is here. The people who love God is here. The, the stuff God's doing in my life is here. I don't get that excited to tell about my life. But I get excited to tell about baseball history, right? The thing that's interesting about this being witnesses is the simple invitation. All John is doing in 1 John 1 is saying this. I'm just telling my story from this guy, Jesus, I've seen. Right? And that's my challenge to you today. How are you telling your story to the world around you? How are you telling your story of what God has done in your life to your kids? to your spouses, to your friends? How is your life showing Jesus to them? John calls us to be witnesses because, listen, Jesus called us to be witnesses. Jesus says, you know what? Go and make disciples, but I want you to be my witnesses. I want your life to tell people about me. And the second thing that's about First John is when we get to 5 to 10, it's very, very practical. The thing I love about the book of First John is, again, you'll read some scripture texts and you're just like, I have no idea how to understand this. And that's good. 
That's why you have the Holy Spirit. That's why you have other believers around you. That's why you have, you know, your minds to think stuff through. But what I love about First John is it's very, very simple. You know, for example, in First 1 to 5, he says, God is light, dark is not in him. You know, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but one of the greatest things we struggle with is why is there sin in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there people hurting, people dying? John says, listen, I know Jesus and all the bad things that happen, that's not from God, right? And that's hard for us sometimes because when life deals us a wrong blow or we're suffering through some things, we want to say, well, God's all powerful. How can he allow this to happen to me, right? But the first thing John wants you to know is that God is light. If it's darkness, it's not from God. And that's something you have to unpack and wrestle with yourself, but that's where he starts off. Another one he says, you know, how can it be possible to have a relationship with God and still walk in sin, right? And that's a hard one because a lot of us want to think that, you know, we're Christians now and we're good people and we're trying our good thing. But John says, listen, I don't care what you say you believe about God. I don't even care what you think you believe about God. If your life doesn't show it, you're either living for God or you're living for yourself. You're either living for God or you're living for your family. You're either living for God or you're living for your job. You're either living for God or you're living for your kids. You know, a lot of people trip over the fact that God seems really jealous in the Old Testament, but they forget that Jesus is also kind of jealous too. There's one verse in his, one of his biographies where he says, if you put your father or mother, your son or child before me, you're not worthy of me, right? That's tough. But what John calls you back to is, if you want to live for God, he has to be first, right? And that's what we'll end with. This idea of being witnesses, it means that we need to be willing to tell people what God's doing in our life. But in this ending point, it's just simply this. We need to be willing to put God first in everything. That means your family. That means your job. That means your skills, your gifts, your abilities. That means everything. You know, the the Jewish understanding of heart. We make heart today something emotional. We make heart today something, you know, it's just like, lovey-dovey. But for them, heart was kind of our idea of soul, all of me. So every time you see heart in the Bible, that's what it means. And what John is saying here is, I want you to know who Jesus is, but I want you to know that living for Jesus has to take all of you. You know, the reason they call this the way of love, and the reason the whole book says love, 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 is because John, when he looks at Jesus, he only sees love. But my question to you today, and we'll end with this, is, when people around you look at you, what do they see? Do they see Hank or do they see Jesus? Do they see love or do they see someone who tells them what they're not? Do they see someone who's trying to live for God or do they see someone who's actually living for God? Do they see someone who is, you know, going with the flow because this is the right thing to do? Or do they see someone who says, Jesus, I'm going to keep growing my relationship with you? We're all witnesses. The question for us is, what are we being witnesses to? What are we being witnesses for? John was willing to step up and say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And my question is simply this, what is your life then telling people about Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for best friends. We thank you for people we thought of even over the course of this sermon. We thank you for people we're thinking of now. We thank you for people in our lives who know us, who vouch for us, and who have impacted us. But Lord, help us all this morning to step up to the plate, 
to realize that relationship with God isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about me and the world around me. It's about me and Jesus coming for all of us. So God, I pray this morning that we all step up to the plate and we're all willing to be witnesses of Jesus. People who say, Jesus is great. This is what he's done in my life. Come and see. But Lord, help us to also be people who live for light and not darkness. Help us to be people who don't complain about darkness, but go out and try to be light. And most of us, help us to live lives that show people who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he means to us. Lord, help us to be your witnesses this morning. In your name, amen.